Welcome to the inaugural episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Seth O'Brien, Clinical Manager at Artificial Limb Specialist and the Chair of the Academy's Scientific Societies Committee. With me today is Chris Bashik. Chris Bashik, MPO, CPO, and Fellow with Distinction, is the Director of Clinical Services for Point Designs. He also serves as the chair for the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society of the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. He and his wife, Shannon, have four kids and live in Centerville, Utah. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to see you. Oh, thanks, Seth. Appreciate you all inviting me on. Absolutely. First of all, I, I want to start out with, you know, you've been a member of the Academy since 2011. How do we get here to where you've been a member since 11? It's almost seven years as the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society chair, got a fellow in 2017 and then fellow with distinction in 2020. And where, where does all the time go? <laughs> I, I wish I knew, but uh, the world keeps spinning and uh, here we are. So, and I, I had a haircut for my wife over the weekend and I noticed there were entirely too many uh, white hairs on the floor. So <laughs> it just happens, I guess. <laughs> Tell me a little bit, obviously you've been a, a big part of not only the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society, but the Academy in general for quite a long time. And how did you get into the profession? What what started this whole career path for you? Yeah, so it's kind of a long and drawn out story, but I'll keep it brief. When I went off to college after high school, I bounced around until I found biomedical engineering as uh, something that really called to me for my undergraduate degree after having been a business major and then computer engineering, computer science. And I was at the University of Southern California at the time, and they were doing some research with regard to the Bion, which was this, you know, implantable electrode, um, kind of a, a grain of rice size electrode that would be injected through the skin into the muscles of the arm. And that could be used for EMG sensing. And I thought that was really cool. I, I didn't really get involved too much in it, but they always talked about it in, in the bioengineering classes. And, you know, it's kind of funny too, because those who were working on that are actually now individuals who I, I work closely with on a regular basis. So it's kind of funny how it's, it's all come full circle from, from that uh, initial exposure to prosthetics. And so I continued on in, in biomedical engineering. I ended up transferring to the University of Utah and at the University of Utah, I was really excited about the fact that they were doing research for osteointegration. And I was fortunate enough during that time to have my undergraduate research project be sponsored by the orthopedic research lab at the University of Utah with Kent Backus and Roy Blabum, who were the PIs on that osseointegration research. So at the time, we had a herd of sheep up in Logan, Utah, that were running around on these implants that had been designed. My research project was to quantify femurs of humans to figure out based on age, gender, and ethnicity, what their shape was. So we, we took a whole bunch of CT scans and found the femoral bow angle um, and then used statistical analysis to determine how many different implant sizes we would need to develop for the human trials. And so that was the end of my research there. And then I graduated and I spent a year as a clinical research coordinator at the University of Utah's cardiology department. It was called the Karma Center, the Cardiac Arrhythmia Research and Management Center. And so I, I did some clinical trial work there and I ended up going on a business trip for one of the, the studies that we were a part of. And it took me to Berlin, Germany. So the very first night I was there in Berlin, I was super jet lagged, couldn't sleep and, and everything was all all messed up. And I was thinking about, you know, where I saw my career going. 
I had thought about going to medical school, but for various reasons, you know, interactions I'd had with surgeons and whatnot, it just didn't seem like the type of lifestyle and career that I was really hoping for. I, I knew I wanted to be involved in patient care, but I, I knew I wanted to have more of a hands-on experience and more personal interaction rather than just trying to get as many people through the door as I possibly could. And also, I, you know, I was interested in prosthetics. So, you know, when I was thinking about medical school, I was thinking I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon and I'd be the one implanting those osseointegrated implants. I was kind of thought at the time. And so I did some research and, and I found the website opcareers.com. And I, I think that that website's changed now, but it kind of gave me my first exposure and I started to, to look up information about it. <laughs> Lo and behold, too, on that same trip, I was, I was walking down the street one evening and uh, I saw this building far off in the distance. And it had these lights on it and, and it looked really cool. And as I looked at it a little bit closer, I was like, that looks like a gate analysis dots because it was moving across the building. I was like, it is a gate analysis setup. And, and so as I got closer, I, I saw the name Autobach on the top of this building. And I was like, what, what is Autobach? And then I, you know, as I got closer, I saw it in the windows and I saw all of the microprocessor knees and the hands that they had on display. I was like, that looks really cool. I want to find out more about that. So I did some more research and I got home after that trip and I, I reached out to, you know, I was in Utah at the time still. And so I reached out to a couple of different people in, in the area wanting to find out a little bit more. One of those was Phil Stevens. And so I finally pestered Phil enough that he, he decided to let me come and shadow him <laughs> for a day at the clinic. And it turned out on the day that it came, he was there with Troy Farnsworth and they were working on fitting a shoulder disarticulation level patient. And it was just really fascinating, really cool. So I, I knew that that was it. And so I, I looked up schools and ended up applying to UT Southwestern among others. And I went down and I interviewed with Susan Cap, and I got in and then that kind of started my career. So that was um, winter of, of 2011 is when I applied and then I, I, I started up in the uh, summer semester of, of 2011. When were you doing the, the research with the uh, osteointegration and the, and the sheep, R right? Is that what you're saying, the, the sheep? Yeah, that was, that, was, that was the undergraduate. So that was right at the very beginning. So um, that was from 2008 to, to 2010 while I was at the University of Utah. Yeah, wow. What a, what a connection. I mean, years before that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that was just an amazing opportunity. I really... I learned a lot from that. And, oh, I, you know, I failed to mention too, um, during uh, one of my courses there at the University of Utah, Harold Sears and Scott Hosey from, you know, Motion Control here in Utah, they came up and gave a lecture uh, and brought their show and tell of, of all their different products and everything. And that just absolutely fascinated me too. So that, you know, that was just another thing that just got me really curious about, you know, what is it? What is this profession? I, I mean, at that time, I didn't even know what it was really called. <laughs> I just knew they right. were prosthetics. I, did, I didn't know what a prosthetist was or an orthotist or anything like that. It, I just knew it was cool and it was, it spoke to me and I, I wanted to be a part of it somehow. It's such a crazy way that, that most of us get introduced to the field and some abstract kind of a chance meeting. And then all of a sudden it just, it seems like for most of the people that you talk with, it, it like it clicks so quickly for them, even though it's such a sometimes a fluke encounter, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I didn't I didn't know any like amputees at all 
really growing up. I can recall two times that I, I came across individuals with upper limb differences when I was younger, but that's it. One time I was on a playground. I saw a guy and he had a you know, body powered system. And then another time was my senior year of high school. We got a new soccer coach there and, and he, he had a transradial level uh, limb difference as well. But I didn't make the team, so I didn't really have a good interaction with him. <laughs> and yet it didn't seem to derail you, right? That could have been the oh. end. Okay. <laughs> you rattled off names in the field that are just huge, in my opinion. And I mean, almost mentors for you. I, I know you have also kind of a connection to the Academy Mentor Program. How, how did that transpire? What, what exactly was your involvement there? Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, so when, when we were students at UT Southwestern, you know, Susan Cap was our program director and she, I won't say made, but strongly encouraged us to join the academy <laughs> as student members, <laughs> uh, which was very awesome of her to, to do that and encouraged us too to attend our, our first academy meeting um, while we were students. And so we were made aware of the mentor program and I decided to sign up for it because I saw it as, as a great opportunity. Uh, when I went off to school, I knew that I wanted to be involved in upper limb prosthetics. That, that was why I went to school, really, at that point. I, lower limb, I, I find interesting. Orthotics was not really why I, I went to school, but uh, I learned a lot in that process and in my residency. The upper limb's interest there specifically because of the things that you had been exposed to in the years before that? I believe so, but I, I was just fascinated with the hand, like everything that we do with our hands, we get around in the world with our legs, but we interact with the world with our hands. And to be able to restore that level of function, I, I love um, I love tinkering and building things. And the fact that with upper limb prosthetics, you have to create almost everything yourself and troubleshoot and put things together and have little tiny parts and screws and things like that. I just love <laughs> and electronics. I knew that that's, that's where I was going. So get uh, connected with the uh, the mentoring program. And, and I was fortunate to be paired up with Chris Lake, who was at the time the chair of the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society. You know, Another minuscule name, just, you know, some some random person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, on the uh, list of all these names that you keep running across, it's it's just, you know, heavy hitter after heavy hitter. Yeah, you know, I, I've been I've been very blessed. I feel like my career has been uh, directed by uh, hands bigger than mine. And it's been a huge blessing to or have these individuals put in my path and, and for the, the kindness that they've showed me in, in their mentorship. Sure. So, so you, okay. So you get into the mentor program and, and you, you run across Chris Lake or, or, or got paired with Chris Lake. Yeah. And he, he was amazing because, you know, he, he was really diligent with that program on a monthly basis, having a, a phone call with me. Uh, we ended up obviously talking more than just on a monthly basis because he invited me to be a part of the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society at the time. And through that, I, I got exposed to other individuals, including Pat Priggy and Joe Brenner, uh, Annie Hess. They were you know, all really active members at the time. And they gave me a project, which helped me learn a lot as well. So they knew my background and being able to do things with computers and, and such and they asked me to help them put together a database of upper limb prosthetics articles for the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society. So I was able to do that. You know, the Academy was using a different web platform at the time. These you know, sites called Ning, 
based on this Ning platform. And um, so I ended up taking kind of the, the ownership of, of that platform and tweaking the website and building out this database. And so that number one, gave me a reason to continue to interact with those individuals. And, and number two, by having to go through all these research articles, I, I learned a lot in that process. And so that was just a, a really amazing experience for me. And that, that mentorship program, you know, official program, we did it for two years during my residency, but, you know, obviously Chris continues to be a, a huge mentor to me. And he was the one who taught me how to do the silicone work that I do currently and, and that my wife does currently. So, okay. you know, that was my first exposure. Yeah. Mentors are amazing. So through that process, essentially, you probably would have found it anyway, but you get introduced to the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society and take on this project. Now you've, you've taken over as the chair of the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society and been doing that for seven years. So that's a big, just a, a big connection there to really dive deeper into that whole field, that specialty. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. When I first got officially involved with the Upper Limb Society after I had I was no longer a student member, but I was, I was a full member. I was offered the opportunity to be the treasurer of the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society. Pat Priggy had taken over the role of the chair from Chris. And so, you know, that was my first exposure to with, you know, some of the, the functions of the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society of having our annual business meetings at the Academy meeting, as well as putting together the Academy Today issues that we've worked on and uh, writing articles for that. So, yeah, the, the networking provided through the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society and just active participation, you know, and just having an attitude of, oh, I can do that, you know, and, and offering my, my service, even, even though I probably say yes to too many things. <laughs> um, but I really worked my tail off to learn as much as I possibly could and, and to make as many connections with as many people as I, as I possibly could. You know, I was passionate about it and I know that my mentors could see that passion in me. And as a result, they were passionate about helping me to learn more and to meet other people as well. Uh, you know, I can distinctly remember at my very first academy meeting, aside from the, the one that I attended as a student. So uh, it was in Chicago and Pat Priggy and Dan Conyers from Arm Dynamics kind of took me under their wing at that meeting and like, took me down to the exhibit hall and walked me around and introduced me to all of the different upper limb manufacturers and the various people who are doing the various different things. You know, I met T. Wally Williams there and uh, Bob Radosi and of course, Jerry Stark too. Jerry's been an awesome mentor as well to me. Actually, I met Jerry at the Academy meeting when I was a student and I went up to him and introduced myself and I was like all nervous and everything because I'd read all of his papers and things that he'd written in the past. <laughs> I was like, oh man, Here's this Jerry Stark guy. I didn't know anything about him. I you know, never met him, never heard him talk. I just read his papers. And so I went up to him and he was super kind and obviously Jerry and amazing and funny and just a good time. And he, you know, he gave me his email address and he sent me over some PowerPoints of his that he had done. And I was just like gobsmacked. <laughs> I, mean, he, I couldn't be an easier person to talk to. I, I mean, yeah. one, of the, one of the most fun people to just be around, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, I just met, as you said, I met a ton of amazing people. There, there are a ton of amazing individuals who are in the upper limb prosthetic space and we all know each other. I mean, prosthetics in general is, is tiny to begin with, but the upper limb community is even smaller within that small community. So it's, it's, you know, it's really tight knit and it's been awesome to have such good friends and colleagues. 
So I want to dive into that a little bit more with the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society. And, and as chair of the societies, I can say for sure, I mean, congratulations, the community that you've established or, or, or carried on in that Upper Limb Prosthetic Society is bar none. It's such a well-run and, and close-knit group. You know, I can even tell from technically I'm a member, but I, I don't dive into it as deeply as, as you guys do, obviously. But you really set the bar as far as the uh, societies go. And you mentioned the uh, Academy Todays as you know one of the publications that the societies put out on a quarterly basis. And Upper Limb Prosthetic Society had the uh, October uh, issue in 2022. So I wanted to touch on a few things that were in the issue because you know I think some really relevant material in the Upper Limb Prosthetics world. First of all, there was a correct coding guidance that was published in March, I think, of 2022. Can you give us just a little bit of like, what's the status of that? I know that that really rattled some cages initially, and there's still some kind of lingering effects, I think. But can you give us just a bit of an update on on where we're at with that and maybe just a brief background? Yeah, so the, the publication is put out by the DME Max as well as the PDAC as a joint statement. They called it a correct coding guidance. The problem with it is that it's called a correct coding guidance, but it has all of the features of a local coverage determination or LCD. It seemed like they really tried to almost circumvent the process, right? It seemed like it was more than that. Yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. You know, in in talking to individuals from those DME Max, they strongly stand by their justification that it's not an LCD, but it's entirely too comprehensive and changing definitions that have been long established to be considered just a correct coding guidance. And it was done very surreptitiously, uh, just kind of you know put out there without any formal announcements. Uh, there was no public comment period, which is required for an LCD. And it was, and it is full of a lot of ambiguities, contradictions, and inaccuracies. From you know someone who practices upper limb prosthetics almost exclusively, you could tell that those involved did not have as much familiarity with contemporary upper limb prosthetic rehabilitation, and and unfortunately because it came from these official organizations, this had repercussions. You know immediately after it was published, within about two weeks, we began to already see denials from private insurance companies based on the language of this LCD. Some of the specifics of the things that it called out with multi-articulated hands, historically, going back to when the the multi-articulated hand code uh, was established, there were several other codes that went along with it, you know, similar to a C-leg, right? You've got a basic microprocessor controlled knee code, and then you've got other features of that microprocessor controlled knee that get billed as separate codes. And that was the same way it was supposed to be with multi-articulated hands. There was a multi-articulated hand code, L6880. And then at the time, we still had a proportional control code. We had microprocessor control and we had autograst. So three additional codes that were feature sets that were a part of different multi-articulated hands. And some hands had those features and some hands didn't have those features. And that's the way it's always supposed to been with prosthetic components. You flesh out the various different features that can be added or subtracted and you code appropriately. Well, this LCD took the broad approach and said, the multi-articulated hand code is now a all-inclusive code and you can no longer bill for 6881 and 6882. It's been about seven years since they took away the proportional control code. 
So in those additional codes, add sufficient reimbursements for someone who is going to be providing an upper limb prosthesis to spend the extra time that's required to train and fine tune those prostheses because they're, they're complex. There's no denying that. And right. to get someone to be successful with it, you have to spend exponentially more time with that individual than you do, say, for a lower limb prosthesis. And so in order to keep the lights on, we need that extra reimbursement to be able to do what we do as, as upper limb prosthetic specialists. Where, where are we at? Do you think, is it something that is going to continue to, to kind of go back and forth? Is it just the way it is for now? Where do we go from here? Or is it just something that we need to keep an eye on and how this unfolds further? Well, we need more involvement from individuals to speak up and say enough is enough to push back and, and not just say, you know, hey, it's somebody else's problem. I think historically, my experience has been that individuals who aren't as involved in upper limb prosthetics say, oh, that's not my problem. But you know, I just mentioned first thing about the sea leg, you know, the sea leg has four or five codes. Well, don't be surprised when the PDACs come out and say, Hey, you know what, you know, that microprocessor code, it, it should be all inclusive. Right. And, and, and then you're down to one code for that knee. And if we don't push back for the upper limb prosthetics, then we're going to see that perpetuate out through, through other amputation levels and, and even in orthotics. I mean, the C-brace just got authorization and it was based on the fact of taking the microprocessor codes for a, a C-leg and applying them to an orthosis. But once again, you know, if they start to chop away at those codes, then we're going to have a problem. And I mean, that speaks to an entirely larger problem with just the fact that we aren't paid for our clinical services um, or that payment is supposed to be bundled into the parts that we sell. You put out a, a very interesting piece that you started to do a little bit of research and, and kind of asking the community in general and, and the way you described it to me, you know, trying to find out what was folklore and what was, you know, actually written in some sort of policy or, you know, the legal aspect revolving around CPT codes and starting to be able to bill for time and things like that. What, what have you learned so far? Where, where are you at in that kind of exploration? Well, it is a learning process. I like to ask questions. My mom always said when I was growing up, she she hated the fact that I always asked why. <laughs> I asked why about everything. And if, if she couldn't give me a good reason, I wouldn't do it. And I kind of am still the same way. And I know that kind of rubs people wrong sometimes, uh, ruffles feathers, but I want to know. I, I want to know why we do things the way that we do. And if there's not a good reason why we're doing it the way that we're doing, then I, I would like to change it and make it more efficient and more appropriate. Sure. So, and I know I don't know everything. I have to do my research and I'm, I'm happy to be told I'm, I'm wrong. And if you can tell me why I'm wrong, once again, you can't just tell me I'm wrong just because you think I'm wrong. I, I won't accept that. But, I, you know, if you can show me why we do what we do and if the way that I'm thinking about it is wrong, then I'm happy to accept that. This all kind of perpetuated from this, this uh, correct coding guidance. I, I really wanted to dig into the weeds and figure out, hey, why is it this way? You know, what are the spelled out definitions in the code of federal regulations saying who a prosthetist and orthotist is, or who is quote unquote, a qualified healthcare provider. Um, because th this is the language that is used in the code of federal regulations. And so I, I started to dig down and I discovered that the HICPIC system was established in the early 1980s. And at the time it was set up so that there was a distinction between paying for services and, and, and then paying for durable medical equipment. And then, you know, prosthetics and orthotic supplies got bundled into that. But there are two levels of HICPICS codes. There's the category one, which is uh, more commonly known as the CPT codes, which are the procedural codes that are used mostly by physicians. 
And then there were the category two codes, which are the, you know, the, the HICPIX code systems, the L codes, the K codes, the A codes. And so there's, you know, this very distinct between procedural codes and then codes for medical devices. Right. Device-based, uh, which we fall into. Yeah. And what happened when they established that too, is that they gave the American Medical Association kind of carte blanche over the category one CPT codes. And then CMS took responsibility for the category two HICPIX codes. So there's these two bodies that kind of govern these things separately. And so what I've discovered is as I, you know, read through the, the CPT codes, I found in there that there are CPT codes that have been established for providing a prosthetic assessment, a checkout of a, of a prosthesis, verifying its functionality, training of a, of a prosthesis or an orthosis in a home or work environment. And there's a set of those codes that have been established for physical therapists and a set of those codes that have been established for occupational therapists. And they were given that authorization to, to bill for those services. And I just, I found that kind of interesting to right. say the least. You know, I think a lot of us have maybe had the assumption that we will never be able to bill for our time until it comes along with this total blow up of the system and start over. But maybe that's not necessarily the case. Maybe there'll be a chance that we can advocate enough to unlock some of these other opportunities without a total reset. I, I wonder. I mean, that, that's the question that I ask. Is that, a, is that a possibility? Because, you know, in the past, my impression has been that our field has focused solely on trying to get prosthetics and orthotics separated from durable medical equipment. You know, seeing that as the end-all be-all way of fixing things. The other thing I, you know, I've seen too is the push and effort to say that prosthetics and orthotics can only be supplied by certified prosthetists and orthotists, which, you know, on its face makes sense. But other organizations who have historically also been able to provide some of those services push back against any legislation that we try and pass that has that sort of language in it because they see that as, you know, taking over some of some of their turf, even though it may be just a very small portion, they, you know, they don't want anybody encroaching on their ability to perform things that they are certified to do. Right. Um, and so my, you know, my question is maybe is, is this an alternate way? Physical therapists, occupational therapists, you can keep that under your scope of practice. That's be it what it is, but can we as prosthetists and orthodists also be able to bill separately for our clinical care? You know, they did it in Germany uh, a couple of years ago. I really like the model that they took over there. And, and I think it's improved the quality of care and access to care. Quite honestly, it, it's streamlined the process. Sure. Well, it'll be, it'll be a really interesting thing to keep up with. We'll have to check in with you kind of as you go and take this, take this initiative of kind of really dissecting it. Man, Chris, the, the time, it, it just goes so quick. We could talk for like the first four episodes could probably be just just you and I chatting about upper limb stuff. You know, we haven't even gotten into 3D printing and, and osseo integration, um, which I know is is a big part of what you do the, on the 3D printing side. But I want to ask you a little bit just briefly about, you know, there's always the debate within our field when it comes to upper limb prosthetics, you know, the importance of having a specialist or somebody who really focuses on upper extremity prosthetics or just sort of the general practitioner doing one or two in a year. And for many, even less, how do younger clinicians that maybe haven't been exposed as much develop into that specialist or that upper extremity guru? You've got to have a desire and passion and you just need to put it out there that you want to be that person. That's what I did. That's how I was able to get the connections with the mentors that I did. And then I just worked towards it. And, you know, when I was in the earlier part of my career, um, 
I did my residency at Kootenai Prosthetics and Orthotics in uh, Post Falls, Idaho. Bob Miller was my my residency director, and and when I I started out my residency, I, I told him, hey, I, I want to be an upper limb prosthetic specialist. And he said, great, you'll see all the upper limb patients <laughs> here, here at my practice. I was like, okay. And, you know, he kind of threw me in the deep end. And to his credit, when a new patient would come in who, who needed upper limb prostheses, he would introduce me as, you know, his resident. And he would also say, but, you know, he, he's really passionate about upper limb prosthetics and he wants to help you out. And, and then I'd have a conversation with that, that patient and say, hey, look, I am just learning this. But I know who to call. I, I can phone a friend if, if uh, I need to figure something out. And if you're willing to work with me through this process, then it'll be a good match. And I promise I'm going to do everything I can to give you the best outcome I possibly can. And that worked. And so, you know, it's kind of that fake it until you make it mentality. quite right. honest. And, you know, I can look back and I can see the errors and mistakes that I made. But I also saw the capacity I learned to uh, fix problems and to change things and to when to know to start over and begin again from scratch. Because sometimes you can just go down this rabbit hole and go in the wrong direction. I mean, I can remember a time when, uh, you know, I had this cowboy guy come in and he was, you know, rough and tumble and everything. And, and so I thought, oh, for sure, this guy needs a body powered device and, you know, something super durable and worked with him for a while. And, you know, he just wasn't accepting it. And, you know, finally after a couple of months sat down, he's like, you know, why isn't this working for you? And I started asking him some more in-depth questions that, you know, what he was really hoping to gain out of this process. And it turns out he was kind of vain and he really just wanted a passive functional prosthesis that was more high definition and more lifelike looking. So we got him that and he was super happy. <laughs> so you know, you can't make assumptions about your patients as they come through the door, uh, just based on, on their appearance and what you think is right for them. You really need to interview them and, and drill down at the very beginning to find out what they really want. And you need to show them all of the options. You can't just, you know, assume that this one category of prosthesis is going to be the best and, uh, you know, they should stick, stick with that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's listening during that entire encounter. That's, I think, where the biggest opportunity for most clinicians is, is to listen more. Yeah, absolutely. And for a clinician starting out, if they want to really delve into this, they need to make sure that they get into a residency or a practice that has, you know, a manager who's in charge who will allow you the time to do it right. Upper limb takes more time. There's just no way around that. You're dealing with a lot more than than just ambulation and mobility. And my initial consultations with patients, when I, you know, before I even evaluate them, it's just consultations. That, I mean, those last two hours. You've got to be able to have two hours on your schedule to block out, to just talk and discuss and show before you ever even get into the taking any measurements or doing outcome measures and things like that. And so if you want to be involved in upper limb prosthetics, you need to make sure you're in a facility that will support you in doing that. Yeah. And I would say an amazing spot to maybe get those mentors if you don't have access to them and to get those questions asked. It's an incredible community. The Upper Limb Prosthetic Society is a great place to start yeah. and they are so helpful and such a so involved with each other. It's great to see. So a great starting point for young clinicians or just any clinicians that are, are looking to expand their upper limb prosthetics knowledge. Chris, real quick, as, as we wrap up here, you've got a, a bunch of stuff. I'm, I'm really excited to see what you have going on here at uh, the Academy's annual meeting for 2023. We're going to be in Nashville, which will be a lot of fun. And uh, I was looking at the schedule and, and you're all over the place. You've got a hands-on session for upper extremity casting and modification and troubleshooting techniques. You've got three papers going for the novel uh, upper limb prosthetics technology. You're going to be the moderator for that. Clinical techniques where you're going to be doing casting alignment, 
fabrication for partial hand sockets. Um, I think that's for, uh, is that a point design sponsored course or, or some yeah. connection there? And then organize sessions, get a grasp on partial hand prostheses. And then if that wasn't enough, then you'll also be doing some free papers as well. So you're going to be a busy man there in Nashville, huh? Yeah. And one, don't forget to come to our Upper Limb Prosthetic Society business meeting as well, too. If you're interested in learning more about Upper Limb Prosthetics, show up there because that's where you get to meet people face to face and make those connections. And it's invaluable. Absolutely. Chris, is there is there a best way for somebody who might be interested in any of these to reach out to you or to the Upper Limb Prosthetic Society? Yeah, you can reach me personally. At, my email is chris at bashuk.com. That's B-A-S-C-H-U-K.com. That's the, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me directly. And I can answer whatever questions you have and put you in connection with the right people or you know, work with me too. I, I love talking about this, as you can see, with the amount of time that I've already <laughs> yeah, right. happy to entertain any conversations or requests from, from anyone out there. All right, Chris. So I have to ask you uh, before we go, any words of wisdom that you have for you know somebody who might be interested in upper extremity prosthetics or maybe young clinicians, anyone out there, just any last thoughts, words of wisdom for them? Yeah, sure. You know, for me, I've had my career built on the shoulders of giants and I've been afforded the opportunity to do so many different things that I just couldn't have done on my own. But at the same time, I did a lot of work to get to where I'm at. Um, I showed initiative and took every opportunity that was given me. And, and one of the, the things that I would just encourage younger clinicians or students to do is to put yourself out there. If you do something interesting uh, or you discover something, write it down. Try and put together a research article, try and put together a clinically appraised topic or a poster and submit it and submit it everywhere and keep submitting. That gives you the opportunity to attend meetings so that you can network and meet the other like-minded individuals. Make sure that when you're exploring your residency or you know your first job out of residency, that whatever company you end up going to work for understands that you're passionate and, and you want to be out there amongst your peers and you want to be able to share what you're learning and that they will be supportive of that. For me, that was a big part of my, my decision-making as far as where I worked. Going back to the mentoring program at the very beginning, Chris Lake, he was the one who introduced me to Tom Passero and Laura Katzenberger, uh, the owners of Handspring, where I ended up working um, as an upper limb prosthetic specialist for seven years. And, you know, without the support of Tom and Laura allowing me to attend all the different conferences that I've been able to attend both nationally and internationally, you know, I wouldn't have learned the things that I've learned and I wouldn't have met the people that I've met. I'm really grateful for those individuals and they have, you know, enabled me to be where I'm at today and given me those opportunities. And so I encourage you to, to make sure that you look for those opportunities and make those opportunities for yourself by, you know, connecting with the right people and surrounding yourself with individuals who are supportive of you in achieving your objectives. That's why I am where I am today. It's because of hard work on my part, but it's also because of the people that have been around me, supporting me and cheering me on. You know, one of the wisest pieces of advice that I've ever received, and uh, it was from Susan Cap when we were students, she said, you know, this profession is really small. Don't, don't burn in your bridges. And it's, it's so true. I know I've not made everybody happy around me all the time. It's impossible to do that, but I've tried to do the right thing. And, you know, when I mess up, I own it and I don't try and blame other people for it. If you're real, if you're genuine, if you work hard and you surround yourself with good people, you're going to be successful in achieving whatever it is you set out to do. 
Absolutely, Chris. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Seth. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And thanks to everyone for listening to the inaugural episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with key voices in the OMP community discussing their area of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in that specialty. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for OMP professionals, the award-winning OMP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard and OMP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our field. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at omp.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.